Peace and love, y'all. This is Manuel J. Faceriguez, otherwise known as Manny Faces. Just want to jump in and let you know that this episode of Show Notes was recorded last week and released this week. So any references to this week really means last week. But if you're like me, ever since pandemic, we don't have any concept of time anyway. So it doesn't matter. Just letting you know. I started The Tourist on Netflix. Have you seen that? No. no. I'm trying to think if I even know what that is. It's trending in shows. It's an Australian thing. It's really good. I watched Love is Blind season six. Hmm. There are six seasons of this? And uh, multiple international seasons. Okay. What's the hook? They meet each other through a wall and fall in love. I've definitely talked about it on here before. Okay. And then they get married within four weeks. Well, they do or they don't get married. So it's not the same as love on the spectrum. No, that is people on the autism spectrum falling in love. Are you implying that this is blind people falling in love? Uh, I didn't know. Mm. I mean, it's a fair assumption. Right? Yeah. We're we're that far down the well on reality shows now. Yeah. I, there's a podcast I listen to that recaps Love is Blind. And it's like half the reason I watch the show is because they're so funny. Mm. So. Should we start another podcast where you just sit with your friends and recap (laughs) Your terrible, terrible Chicago shows. Oh, my God. I think it would be a hit, honestly, for the niche people out there. Mm -hmm. Like the the podcast I'm talking about, you know, they don't have a huge listener base, a good amount, but they get me and I get them. And I think there's someone out there who loves the Chicago shows that will get me. That's so nice. Yeah. There's a pot for every lid, even with everyone's little niche things. Podcasts unite the world. I don't know if there's a, a pot for every lid. Because if you look in our pot drawer, you know what there's not? Okay, this this is the... Tupperware? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we've got like the fancier glass kind that came mm, along the way. The that's Pyrex. Like Pyrex. Okay, so we've got Pyrex. We've got some classic Tupperware. And what we wind up defaulting to is we save and wash the Chinese food containers mm. and just use those because I always know that the lids are going to fit. I cannot match these lids to save my life. And I have dishwasher and um, cabinet OCD. So we're, we're incredibly organized. We're not supposed and to say yet, we have OCD about things if we don't have OCD. Just letting you know. I think if you put me through some sort of test, I I'm, I might qualify. You're self-diagnosing? Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm legally diagnosed, so I can, I'm going to overrule and allow the I'm gonna allow it this time but just some people get upset about it just letting you know okay um I am obsessive and compulsive (laughs) and disordered well you're ordered you actually have OCO okay obsessive compulsive order order yeah about the dishwasher which I didn't realize was a thing until social media came along and now I see that there are so many memes about that. Um, but then also how everything stacks up in the cabinets. Most of it is a waiting issue, but it's also like what's in reach and stuff like that. And I'm constantly reorganizing it because my family doesn't give a shit. Mm. There, yeah. We don't have a dishwasher in our apartment. That's, that's. So when we, <laughs> it's awful. Yeah. But when, when we, like when my friend has a dishwasher, we are at her apartment and we were loading it for her, and she was like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> and I, it was my roommate who was doing the majority of it, and I was like, we don't have a dishwasher. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if 
I don't know if her mom was like this, but like we weren't allowed to touch the dishes in the dishwasher when we were younger because my mom was going to like she had her order. Yeah. So I know no one taught me to properly load one. Mm. So I don't think I do a very good job either, mm. given the chance, you know, if I'm at my sister's or something. Um, to break the stereotypes, my dad taught me how to iron hmm. when I was young. And but that was the laundry room was the purview of my mom exclusively. But he was showing off his bachelor years. And so mm. he said, let me show you how to iron. <laughs> and so we did that. And then I told my mom and she's like, really, let me show you how to drive. And she took me out for my before I had a license and uh, started teaching me how to drive because she was so offended that my my dad would just sort of step in and be like, really? So I've been doing laundry here for like, you know, a dozen years exclusively. And <laughs> suddenly you're the ironing master. So she taught me how to accelerate out of the turn. That was my big lesson. Oh. Yeah. Today I saw a car on fire. Wow. Really? I did. It's exciting. Yeah. It was on Neat. the uh, the uh, parkway mm. or the expressway or the mm. I-interstate way. Okay. I'm, I'm leaving it vague for the listeners. That's fine. Google car on fire today. Is it Was it on one of the roads where you're allowed to take a truck or not allowed, thanks to Robert Moses? Allowed. Allowed? Yes. Okay, so I don't it know. Was, it was a car, not truck. I think we've talked about this on the show before, uh, but we don't expect that everybody listens to every single minute. But one of the more fascinating aspects to the boroughs and uh, heading out to the end of Long Island is that Robert Moses did a lot of the planning back in the day when the boroughs were expanding. And he initially created park a parkway system with very low bridges to prevent buses from bringing black people to um, different parts, basically just trying to keep them within the city limits because his feeling was that they would never have cars. Kind. Uh, and the reason, the extended reason for that is because they uh, did not vote the way that... Um, oh, because they wanted, wanted like equality and progress. Buses equal Democrats. Yeah. So, fun facts. Well, it is funny. I mean, it's not funny, but it's a little funny because trucks still try to drive, I'd say, every week. A plane landed on the parkway I, this I week. Did, I saw that. <laughs> that was but, exciting. But trucks drive, and uh, they get the like the tops of their trucks stuck up there. Mm-hmm. Never gets fucked during traffic. Yeah. It happens weekly. You would think. I was once in a business where I contributed to that. I forgot about the days where you were a truck driver. Not a truck driver, but we had rented a truck for the day, and uh, it was when we were in hospitality, and uh, two of our uh, chefs. Went to uh, an off-premise party, and they um, they did they can did the can opener under a parkway overpass. It was pretty exciting. How much did you have to pay for that? Uh, yeah, I mean, it dinged our insurance pretty good. Yeah, well, opened it up like a fucking sardine why can. Why did you trust them to do that? <laughs> I mean, it was a different time. I don't know. That seems like a common sense, a lapse in common sense. Anytime. Yeah, you'd have to uh, if if you knew them. It would be like, okay, there's really nobody else to do the job. And then also, yeah. I know, but we all live here. We all know that rule. Yeah, I know. There's signs everywhere. It's exciting. And you can, sometimes, you know, when you're in a parking garage and you think your car is going to hit the ceiling, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you should feel like that in a truck when it is going to hit the ceiling. Needless to say, I'm I'm never mad (laughs) when I see that that happens on one of the parkways. Because because, you've uh, caused it. I was there. Wow. So gracious of you. Mm Mm-hmm. Listen, I got some general notes here that we need to go through before we get to stuff, okay? 
Are you okay with that? Um, you created the section, so I'm going to say you have to be. You know, I really, I have a problem with it. Okay. I don't really want to get into it today because I think it's going to open up too much trauma. Really? Yeah. I think we have to. (sighs) Come on, step through the door. Come with me. I'll try. Here we go. First off, uh, for those of you, uh, and now it is many of you, and we know this because, uh, because of the back order and the backlog that we have. For those of you that order coffee from us, you may have noticed that there have been some shipping delays. And we apologize for that. Our roaster is a small business and you are giving us more business. And that is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Uh, But it has created a backlog and we are, I think, almost through it. I think uh, it has loosened up. Coffee orders are nearly back on track. But if you have been waiting longer than usual, we apologize. It's a sign of growth and good things to come. So I wanted to say sorry, but also thank you. Uh, and I believe that um, Amy has uh, staffed up a little bit and we are we are cranking, cranking out the deliciousness. So there's that. The other thing is I am really thrilled and I just wanted to offer a blanket thanks for all of the newsletter signups. So we have two newsletters now. There is a premium newsletters. newsletters. We have a premium newsletter that goes out on Tuesdays. And uh, that is for members only. But we made sure because remember, we were going to make that part of the membership tier. And we said "Ah, that we always promised we wouldn't take anything away from anybody for membership. So we just added something instead. So on Friday, uh, Saturdays now, rather, we finish it on Friday. We send it out Saturday with the episodes. We're sending out our weekly newsletter. And if you are not yet on that list, get after it. It's very easy to sign up for it now. If you go to the new website at UNFTR.com, sign up for the newsletter. We are literally signing up dozens of people a day, and it is really cool to wake up and see all the new subscriptions, and we we really appreciate it. And I hope you love it. The open rates are fantastic. We've seen people clicking on all the links and doing stuff, and it's kind of neat to sit back and watch this thing kind of take off. And it has become like a whole other product line for UNFTR, which is really cool. So if you're not yet signed up for the newsletter, I don't think you're going to be disappointed because people seem to really like it. And uh, for those of you that have signed up and you're getting it and you're opening it, thank you. We appreciate that. Now, we do have a lot of members now who are switching over. 99 has been batching out the notices and getting in touch with people independently who are on the Buy Me A Coffee platform and asking them kindly to transfer over to our new membership platform that was custom built with love by 99 and, and team So if you are still on the Buy Me A Coffee membership platform and you can see your way clear to moving on over to the UNFTR custom built 99 special membership platform, please do so. That would be awesome. I have to say that we need to, one of the reasons we did this was to make it easier, faster and to offer more stuff with the memberships. It helps us keep track of everybody when they're in one place because we are offering more value with the memberships now. But I can tell you that if we're going to continue to do this thing that we do and put all of the love and care into it, we're going to need to double our memberships by the end of the year. It's a lofty goal, but it's a definitely a doable goal. So we need to we need to really start to amplify the memberships. But we promise you that you are going to dig it. One of the things that you're that the members are some of the members are going to see is a new sticker pack. Yes, that is for comrades and over caffeinated members we have a monthly sticker subscription and the first batch is in i designed them myself they're so great (laughs) 
They're fun. They're fun. It's got like an unfucker sticker, an FMF sticker. So like the basics, it's it's UNFTR light, the, all the classics. My favorite is a small little circle with Milton's head and a, and a cross throat. I was trying to Google what, like I was like, how do I, because I, I didn't want to create that symbol because they just exist. Yeah. I'm not going to measure it and everything. And I was like, what are those called? I was like, don't sign? Like, they don't yeah, have a you're name. right. That's yeah. why I said crossroad, because I don't know what to call it. It's weird. Hmm. Did you find out what it is? No, I mean, they just came up for like, <laughs> no. no symbol, <laughs> don't stop. Don't. Yeah, no, no don't more. stop. <laughs> That's basically the synonyms. Maybe it's the Willy Wonka symbol. Yeah, it's yeah. a good one. But yeah, I, I made them a little funky, some fun fonts, you know. I love it. I love it. I was so tickled. When the package came. I'm glad. I, I never got to see your reactions. So it was so you neat. just tell me that you like them and I have to believe you. I do. I know, but I, I, I like to see a raw reaction for once in my life. <laughs> Sorry. I can replay it for you later. Okay. Okay. Maybe um, we'll do an unboxing video next time. Ooh. We can put it on Instagram. So fun. <laughs> Actually, that would be really funny. That would be funny. Okay. And I could put the stickers all over my face. Yeah. That'd Yay. be cute. So yeah. Become a member if you're not a member. It's not too late. By the time you hear this, you got a couple days to sign up to get the February sticker pack. That's right. And then if you don't, you're going to have to wait for March. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, you're going to have to wait for April. That's right. And then... And they're all going to be different. Exactly. That is the thing. Mm -hmm. So I have to start... You want to get in early and have all turning. of the collectibles. I'm all the thinking, things. apparently it's Women's History Month next month. What do they need a history? So month we for? could do like women, unfucking women, like Ooh. women we. Uh, uh, okay. Don't be pervy. Sorry. That's my job. Okay. Today I was being, I was being clean. Mm. I was being kind, mm. soft, all of the words. Feminine. Mm -hmm. As it were. No. 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 Those are not necessarily feminine traits. Because I could be angry, just like a man. We're all angry, especially it's not, us. It's not anger. It's bitchiness. Don't That's you know the difference? Also in there. <clears throat> yeah, good. Mm -hmm. I hope that frog continues to, to <laughs> suck up your oxygen. <laughs> but maybe we do an unfucking women's heroes month. How far? We're 14 minutes into this recording. You've already corrected me on uh, a disorder and um, my characterization of feminine traits. Well, that one you were doing on purpose, so yes. I don't think it counts. Okay. The disorder one was so... We know the listeners, I don't want someone out there to be upset because people often use, especially, you know, OCD is a big one where they'll be like, I'm so OCD because I like mm -hmm. my pens in the line. And it's like, well, there are people who really suffer or not suffer is also that word is uh, contentious. Some people don't suffer. They live with it. Mm -hmm. And it's just part of them. But especially after a mental health episode, I think it's important to call these things to light. So it's not about you. It's about edifying the entirety of the unfucking kingdom. Of course it's about me. Come on. I mean, yeah. Hobby. Welcome to my lives. <laughs> Ooh, lives. Mm, wow. <laughs> well, I mean, I do technically mm. have two lives. This life and my yes. beep life. That's right. So... Mm -hmm. I mean, you're equally a dick in both of them. <laughs> so I guess that's, you know, there's continuity there. Wow. <laughs> Sorry, we haven't spoken on Mike and I'm rusty. Uh, I, you know what? This is like the, the truth coming out, right? There's truth in everything that you say. Yeah. Right. I've been off for a couple of days. Yeah. I'm feeling I'm feeling confident like yeah. I could take you down a peg. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do it. Do it. Your hair sucks. <laughs> now I know you're lying. It does look nice today. Thanks. You're welcome. Okay. All right. 
All right. So thank you for becoming a member if you did that and for switching over from the Buy Me Coffee platform. And for all of you who are not yet a member, we've got stuff coming. So become a member. Help us out. We got to double it by the year end. Okay. Now, I promised at the beginning of the year uh, something to everybody. And so it has only taken me two months, less than two months to break that promise. And that promise was uh, no more series for a little while. (laughs) But it's, I think, unavoidable. And here's why. One of the most contentious issues in the country right now that I believe is the least understood is the border crisis. Also, we've done two immigration episodes and we've done some immigration adjacent episodes, specifically with our Latin America and Caribbean episodes that sort of contribute to at least our political understanding of uh, why people have migrated to the United States. And what we're going to do is we're going to replay the most recent immigration episode as a primer for some of the uh, interviews that we have coming up. And the way that I'm approaching this one is a bit different. So the plan is to basically unearth the new material, things that have changed since we did the last immigration episode, uh, because I want to acknowledge that many of the, the factors that we covered in those episodes still exist. They're still true, but the number of people coming across the border and the countries of origin have changed dramatically. And there is a crisis at the border, and it has now stepped into some of the coastal areas that are not used to um, welcoming migrant communities at this level. There, obviously, the political backlash to this is enormous, and we're right at the moment when there was a a border bill, which I don't fully. I don't have my arms around it fully. It didn't pass. So, I mean, it matters and it doesn't matter. But there was a proposed border bill for funding um, that I need to understand a little bit deeper, whether it passed or not. But also the fact that it didn't pass is because Donald Trump from absentia pressured the Republicans to not take it up after they were the ones that pushed to have the bill done. And it was apparently a collaboration, including with Biden directly over several months to come to this agreement. And then it was summarily killed by the people who suggested that they actually create the bill in the first place because Donald Trump needs chaos to continue at the border in order to promote his reelection bid. So there's a lot that's going on that needs to be unpacked, but those are just the headlines. And so... I'm curious about some deeper issues. And one of the things that got me moving to this angle is some stuff that I I, I feel like cannot be answered by research because research and articles and books can give you a great historical perspective. Now, we already have some of that, but the historical perspective needs to be married with current facts on the ground. And there are things that are developing right now that are materially different than where we were six months ago and certainly where we were prior to the pandemic. One of the prompts that I have is a text that I got from a really good friend of mine who still works in hospitality. We worked together years ago. 
and he texted me. This is somebody I would characterize as a quasi-libertarian. So let's say certainly topically informed on cultural items, has an ear to the ground, listens to a variety of uh, news sources, is more in the podcast universe than he is in the mainstream universe. And so lots of social media hearsay, lots of repostings, a lot of echo chamber stuff, full disclosure coming out of like one foot in the Rogan universe and probably one foot in, in the progressive universe. And so a lot of conflicting ideas kind of bouncing off one another like atoms and making his head explode because in his day-to-day job, in his real-life job, he is dealing with an influx of job seekers every day. Used to be a couple of people would come in during the month and say, this is my cousin, they just got here from Guatemala or Honduras or El Salvador. And it was pretty much the same story every single time. Now it is a lineup at the door and people coming from Woohoo! What do we got? <laughs> is that a notification or is um, that a it's an alarm I set the other day when I was taking a nap. <laughs> it's five. It's a three o'clock nap. Oh my goodness. We had gone out to lunch and then we were gonna You had food loot in the middle of the day? I well it was we were out like away for the weekend, so we were already tired. It was mm-hmm. we'd been up till like that was the one night we stayed up late. Uh-huh. So, okay, look. No, it's great. I like to sleep. I love to sleep. So. I just do it all at once at night. Um, I can't always do that. <laughs> I have to microdose. Um, Sorry. No, it's fine. <laughs> so now he's he said, I have, he's like, I have people from China at my door. And they came from the, across the southern border. He's like, what the fuck is that? Also, I have dozens of people queuing up. And it's not occasionally, it's every single day. And so he's like, that's one thing. But my buddy, his buddy, lost a contract, a hotel contract. He's a food supplier for certain hotels uh, and a a specific supplier. And he lost the contract for 30 some odd hotels because they were converted to migrant housing. And so a lot of the normal limited service type, you know, uh, hotel stuff that you get, like the breakfast buffets and all that kind of stuff. They ceased doing it because they basically t- like turned into apartments with no amenities, right? I feel like they should still do the bar- the breakfast. would be nice. But nobody helpful. can pay for them. I know, if they just did them to help. But they're getting minimums for the rooms. So his question was, who's paying that bill? Will the hotels ever convert again? Is this a moment in time? What happens to, like, the ancillary economy, if, you know, when that happens, like there's so circumstances are changing very quickly in certain pockets of the country. Then you have other parts of the country that aren't taking an influx of migrants, but are seeing and hearing stories about them secondhand, thirdhand through social media and in these echo chambers. And these people are being demonized and villainized. You've got Eric Adams from New York City leading these, you know, huge campaigns with Kathy Hochul as the governor in New York saying, uh, we're going to do everything we can, but we're going to start to limit funding for this. And we've got to We've got to cut the spigot off. Then you've got the you've got uh, Greg Abbott in Texas being like, I sent them all there because this is what I deal with. So go fuck yourselves. And I'm just going to keep sending them there. And you've got Ron DeSanctimonious, who's like, you know, 
Well, I sent them there too, even though like, it's like, dude, you're not even part of this thing, you know? So there's a lot going on. I have more questions than I have answers right now. And because the facts are changing on the daily, I think we can do a little bit of historical context and research in order to tease out better questions about what's changing, what the path forward is, but approach this from a couple of different angles. One is socioeconomic, for sure. Another is from our foreign policy and foreign interventions perspective. Then there's also the funding perspective. It's a great question. Who is paying for the hotel rooms? I don't know the answer to that off the top of my head. I know it's probably a federal program being filtered through states and then those subsidies coming down through people that have gone through, you know, hotel chain owners that have gone through an RFP process. I can I can see it in my mind's eye, but I don't know that to be absolutely true. I have a very good friend who is a longtime reporter in New York who's been reporting on the surge in migrant activity for the last two years saying that this has reached a, a, a tipping point in a crisis and you can see people being dropped off, not just by Greg Abbott, Abbott, but actually just being dropped off in like unmarked vans in droves. So these are obviously like bootleg human trafficking operations that are somehow in this country, but hooking up with people at the border to, to offer safe passage into the cities. And these are whole families that are together being told somebody's going to meet you there. They get out of the van and the vans go. And these people literally don't know what to do next or where to go. And so they wind up in homeless shelters. The homeless shelters have been taken over. So they wind up being registered somehow, somewhere through city agencies that are trying to place them in other parts of the state and so on and so forth. And so you see this this bleeding out of this crisis and, uh, of, and it's, it's a humanitarian crisis of our own design but the, the fact is that more people are coming here. Why? Why have we underfunded? Oh, so somebody made a great point the other day that the backlog of cases, if they were to work through the asylum cases at the pace we're adjudicating them today, it would take something like 100 years to work through the backlog. So that's not going to work. There's just no, at this moment, we are stuck. We have no clear path forward. So again, my questions are, what was in that border bill and did it realistically have anything that would have addressed the adjudication of the asylum cases? Because to me, it's not so much about blocking down people sneaking through. It's like we have people that are in their minds presenting themselves through the channels that we have historically afforded them to come into this country. And so we have this massive backlog and they're sitting there in purgatory, essentially, with nowhere to go. And then some of them might then just try to find safe passage into the country through these bootleg, you know, trafficking operations. It is a fucking hot mess. I feel like it's a disservice to leave the past immigration stuff that we have out there because it's when the numbers were like substantially lower than they are now. And, and, and it's so much a part of the election narrative. So the other last point I'll make on this is the other thing that's causing me to think a little bit differently about how to approach this is, remember how I said in CD3 in New York with uh, Tom Swazi versus Mazzy Pillip, the initial round of mail and the ads that I was seeing was uh, painting Mazzy Pillip as, um, as pro-life and um, federal abortion ban supporting candidate, and then painting Tom Swazi as just a, uh, as a woke politician 
uh, which is incredibly laughable if you know Tom Swazi, who voted with Biden 100% of the time, which makes it even more laughable if you think that Biden represents a woke agenda, right? And then there was a shift. And in the last couple weeks of the campaign, it became all about the border crisis. And all of the literature against Tom Swazi became a quote that he had from years ago where he took credit for kicking, quote, kicking ice out of Nassau County, which is the bigger part of the district that he represents between Nassau and Queens. And they hammered that message home. Now, it didn't work, obviously. But it was interesting to me that their polling data obviously showed to them that migration and immigration was top of mind for people in New York. That has never been the case, ever been the case. So now we have the Democrats hoping that the that bodily autonomy will turn out the Democrats in November. And you have Republicans hoping that the border crisis will turn people out in November. And these are all like mini little litmus tests to see which message is, is going to resonate. And obviously, since Trump intervened and said, this is what it's going to be, you know, you need to lock this down. I need chaos to continue at the border. There's there's data out there that suggests that this will be a winning strategy for them, even if it didn't work in, you know, Nassau and Queens in New York. It's resonating somewhere else in the country and, and probably in many, many places. And it might even be resonating in, in places where people aren't being impacted by the migrant crisis at all. They're just more susceptible to the messaging that this is, again, uh, the great replacement theory. We're being taken over in the premium newsletter this week. I put out a, a PBS poll that showed that half of the country is concerned about, quote, national identity when it comes to immigration. And and that's that's split between Democrats and Republicans. That's one of the areas that we're. Democrats favored immigration because they thought it was important to the character of the country. It's a responsibility that we have. Most Republicans don't agree with that. Shocking. But when it came to fear that it would impact our national identity, that's when the nativist tendencies of the more moderates of both sides, I think, or, or, or maybe the, the extremes and some of the moderates on both sides comes out. So nativism expressed through I don't want more Spanish speakers here. Or if you're on the West Coast, we don't need more Asian immigrants into the country. Or, you know, I don't want English as a second language to take over all the school districts. And it's helping. And that's why we perform poorly. There's all of this subtext to these like top line messages that begin and end with immigration. Doesn't make them right, but it makes them accurate when you're trying to like get a general sentiment for how people feel the direction of the country is going. You also have people that don't, that still believe that migrants are coming here for our jobs, despite the fact that we have historically low unemployment. So it's a mess and it's really hard to unpack. And every time I go down a certain path, there are practical questions that I, I feel like we need the cadre of experts to help us unpack. So we're working on somebody from Latin, uh, who's an expert in uh, Latin American economies and politics, working on uh, members of Congress who have um, very much who are very much on the front lines of working through the machinations of legislation that would impact our border policies. Experts in uh, New York specifically, just because it's our backyard and I can speak to it a little more fluently uh, with where pockets of migrants are going and where their countries of origins are. And then there's probably somebody else in the mix there uh, that will tease out 
that will help us sort of like understand the overarching uh, narrative when it comes to what this will mean for uh, the election in November. So um, that's my long-winded way of saying be patient with me because we're going to be rolling these out in over the next couple of weeks. I'm not even confident that we'll be doing it on a normal like Saturday drop schedule because I'm going to try to be opportunistic about the people we get to speak to. And the format might be a little bit different. So what I might do is carve up some of the interviews to fit in a different, um, to make sure that they are issue specific. So there might be some overlap in between them. So a little bit of a different approach than what we've normally done. More timely, more topical. uh, And there are even some questions as we'll get to today uh, that I think will help inform some of the direction of this. So there you go. That's where we're at right now. And um, I think we will get now into show notes proper. So much for the great American melting pot. So much. So much for give us your tired, your poor. Do you remember that from Schoolhouse Rock? That sure. specific one? Absolutely. I can hear it in my head. Like, we are a nation. We are literally all immigrants. I mean, not, not us, all of them. but. Not everybody. Eventually. Well, you're right. <laughs> By what I'm. The colonizers, <laughs> all the colonizers are immigrants. That's right. Or the colonized. So it's just such bullshit. Because you know those people. I mean, I'm broad generalizations, but if you take the person who doesn't want immigrants, look at their background. They're not Native American. <laughs> no. Like, <laughs> and where do you fucking think you came from? <laughs> a line of people who didn't come from here. And we came here. That's right. It's just bullshit. It makes me mad, man. I love, um, I, I spent, uh, I don't think this is anything I haven't already said before, but I've spent time reporting on um, Native affairs by and on reservations that are, are on the border of U.S. and Canada. And one of them in particular is a place called, on the U.S. side, it's called Agosasne, and on the Canadian side, it's called St. Regis. But they're, uh, even though they're split by the St. Lawrence River, it's one contiguous uh, reservation. And they have to deal with the local police in Canada for the province, so the provincial police and the RCMP, and then the New York State troopers and the basic and and at certain times the National Guard, and uh, and the state government, and then the federal government because it's a federal federally recognized reservation. And t- <laughs> talking to them about national borders is a fucking trip because it's like they're like which ones, which ones, which which state agency of which province of which country do you want to talk about because they literally have intergovernmental relations between them all and it's almost and it's it was a great reminder for me that like our borders are so fucking arbitrary and the rise of nationalism across the world is all so goddamn arbitrary that it's it's silly it's part of what i enjoyed about the history of uh going through the history of socialism and and the the marxist tendency that was trying to erase borders and and not get caught up in nationalist tendencies because it's it's so evil. Once you once you get into nationalist tendencies and you pin those to a political agenda, it's like nothing ever goes right, you know? You know, what about humanity? Yeah. It's just I feel like the answers are so simple. So simple. Everything's And now sad people are like, bad. you know, we should be looking at the Canadian border too. It's like literally like five people a year come across the Canadian border. They're like that might be our next crisis. I literally, there was somebody who was. You don't want to come here. <laughs> why would why would Canada want to come here? I'm not saying they're perfect. We've covered, but why? No, would- it's a porous border. It's a leak, leaky border. 
So maybe that's where they're, all the Central Americans over, are going to you know, find their way to Canada no, first. They're going to come over Niagara Falls in a fucking barrel. That would be mint. I love Niagara Falls. Not really, but I love that when you go to the New York side, it's disgusting. And the Canada side's really nice. You know, that's a trope. It's not. I've been there. It's a trope. It's not. The, the New York side looks like Virginia Beach. <laughs> the last time I crossed the, the border, because that's usually how we go to Canada, is we, we will go up. If we take a barrel up the falls, uh, it's very hard to do, <laughs> uh, is we will fly to Buffalo and and then cross because it's so much easier to clear customs at the border. And it's a really easy drive to get to Toronto and stuff like that. Toronto. 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 And um, the last time I was there, they they closed the fucking, I, I chose the wrong crossing by Niagara Falls. I was like, ooh, let's do the falls. That'll be fun. We could see stuff on the way. And uh, it's like they were like there was like a changing of the the fucking guard or something like that. And they went down to one entrance and I sat on the fucking bridge for like two and a half hours. And I don't like bridges to begin with. And I'm like, this 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 sucks. This blows. What a mistake. Should have flown. And you still think it's a trope that our side is a dump? I, I just didn't think that their side was all that much more lovely. I didn't spend enough I time mean, like in not the like, individual pockets. Though. I don't. It's a it's a falls. I'm not didn't blow me away. It's it's cooler at night when it lights up. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, the other side is like, I don't know, like a spa. Can you imagine coming upon that, though, when there was nothing here? What that must have been like? Probably really loud. Super loud. (laughs) There was no noise. Right. Must have been incredible. Yeah. Thank God the colonizers found it. Yeah. And made it. And then turned it into energy. Yeah. and, And boats. Yeah. We're the best. Have we done the Maid of the Mist? No. Wow. Yep. I've done it. Did you? I did. With the sleepaway camp. Oh, camp. Yeah, they took us to Canada. Oh. I was just shy of 18. Camp? Mm. Just shy of 18, so I couldn't drink. Oh. And I don't know if they, uh, I I wasn't risking my fake ID there. There. Yeah. (laughs) My brother got caught in the age transition in the United States where it was drinking age was 18 and then for like a minute and a half it went to 19 when he turned 18 and then the next year they were like no fuck it 21 (laughs) your brother's wait I feel like that he was that he's not old I feel like that was like olden times not actually Mm. I'm being facetious but Mm. I didn't realize he seems young for that to have happened you think in my mind okay he's younger than you no different brother Oh, wait. No, I'm. that's what I'm talking about. Isn't he younger? No? No. I thought you were like a couple of years. How much? What's the age difference? Seven. I don't think I knew that. Mm. That makes more sense now. Yeah. yeah. So that means he is old. Yeah. The other brother. Yeah, I mean, he's a child. My brother from an, another family. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of adopted. Long story. It's... Anyway. We we found him. It's like uh, Wild Thornberries. <laughs> that's Donnie. We found him. That's Darwin. <laughs> he found us. It's adorable. All right, let's get into some emails here. We're going to start it off with Nathan J, who loved the episode right until the end. This is from, <laughs> I know we haven't done a show notes in two weeks now. That's right. So we've had a phone a friend. Yep. And we've the had- The great Ben Burgess. Yes. And we've had the last episode, which was the banality of violence. Mm-hmm. And so this is feedback directly from that episode to clarify. That's right. YouTube shut down the banality of violence. They were like, we they're love like, violence. They were like, nope. We love beheadings. And <laughs> too political. Too controversial. Of people being murdered. Mm-hmm. We're YouTube. They sound like Ben Shapiro. <laughs> Apparently. 
So Nathan said, love the episode right until the end. I honestly thought you were gearing up for a tough conversation. So he continued it and said, here's what I was hoping for. As we hear the staggering numbers of murdered innocent lives, people continue to echo this one sentiment as justification for their complacency. This goes back to biblical times and we can't fix the conflict. Terms like holy war and God's plan have also been used in conversations with the tinge of this is what they deserve. While you called out our banality of violence, we often overlook the banality of hate justifying the violence. But we are a Christian nation, in quotes, right? If America were a Christian, were as Christian as people want to proclaim, then having a call for a ceasefire in Gaza wouldn't be controversial. It would just be the Christian thing to do. We wouldn't be numb to the suffering of Palestinians, Ukrainians, Mexicans, or any other group of people trying to flee from an evil the Christian Americans seem all too willing to accept. And this is just looking at it from a global perspective. Perhaps Americans are not as Christian as we proclaim. In 2023, 320 trans people were murdered, and half of the government cares more about demonizing the trans community. We lost 227 lives to school shootings, and we're still debating the importance of guns concerning an amendment that only new muskets. We have approximately 25, Ameri 25 million Americans without health insurance, with medical bills being the number one cause of bankruptcy. Yet this isn't even a priority to mainstream candidates. Where is the Christianity? I think I'll just leave that where it is. It's a maybe Nathan should write the uh, the end caps to our episodes. Well done, thank you, Nathan. Appreciate that. And now we have we have some general feedback from our buddy Hrund. So Hrund says, do you see some connection between Alexei Navalny and Julian Assange? I mean, as a threat to the government. Is what America doing to Assange so much different than what Putin did to Navalny? I can't see so much difference, other than that he is dead. I guess if the American government would get their hands on Assange, he would likely disappear one day or be killed in prison. So I think these are two different things. I, I, I understand the temptation to connect them. One thing I want to say on Navalny is there is Aaron Mate, and I came, I came to this by way of Lee Camp. So I just want to give the credit for where I was looking at this stuff. But Aaron Mate had kind of done a, a good piece on Navalny and kind of his importance to the West versus and the Western narrative about Russia and Navalny's importance within Russia. Navalny was running at apparently even imprisoned and sort of like martyred and the face of a cause, at least that's how the West has portrayed him was running at about 2% support. And there are people, there are political opponents of Putin that are actually more well-known and uh, taken more seriously on the, on the political stage than Navalny. His contention was, don't be so quick to think that Navalny was murdered by Vladimir Putin. There was actually very little for Putin to gain in his death. Whereas Navalny was also an activist in opposition and to essentially oligarchy in general and had found himself on the wrong side of a any number of very despotic Russian oligarchs who could have just as easily perpetrated this. Um, so he said, you know, be careful of the snap judgment and the immediate narratives that come out when something like this happens because it is... Navalny represented something way more important to the West than he did within Russia. So again, I'm only saying that because that's not my area of expertise. 
And there are people with much more familiarity with Russian politics than I certainly will ever be who are saying, you know, I, yeah, I get it. Like the martyrdom thing, this is all terrible, but this might not be the correct narrative. Doesn't let Putin off the hook, doesn't make Russia any less corrupt. Uh, just saying that we may not have, you know, the right take on this. And I think if you ever want evidence of the fact that we're trying to create and craft a narrative around something, just look at how quickly the narrative turned to blaming Putin. I mean, even Biden came out like that day and said that Putin was responsible directly for killing Navalny. So it, it, I don't know if we'll ever know the truth about this. I just want to put that out there. When we talk about contextualizing Assange, there's a lot going on with Julian Assange right now. I don't correlate the two of them. I, I see Navalny as a natural activist, and that's fine. Whereas Assange is being portrayed as an activist with an agenda. And I think that that characterization of him has been patently, well, crafted, purposely crafted and patently wrong. He is a publisher of information who did things in a way that we had never believed possible before with the openness of WikiLeaks. I would encourage you to go back and listen to our Assange interview, our, our Assange uh, podcast, if you haven't listened to it, because he is actually, as we, maybe as we, as you're listening to this, or it might be next week, putting forward his final appeal in the UK against, uh, defending against extradition to the United States. If Assange, if that gets taken down and he, and he loses that third appeal, in theory, the U.S. will be able to extradite him almost immediately and then disappear him into the, not the legal system in the United States, the military legal system, which is not a jury of your peers. It is not a civil trial. It is a military junta. And that is a very important distinction to understand. Moreover, if he does come to the United States, he will be standing trial for treason, despite the fact that WikiLeaks was not based in the United States, nor was it ever based in the United States during the time of all the controversy or since. And the leaks that were published by him, by WikiLeaks, when he was not on U.S. territory, were published on U.S. territory by the likes of the New York Times and Washington Post and others. And so if he is convicted in a, in a military tribunal in the United States, and disappeared for, I think the charges amount to 170 years, he will be, in my opinion, a prisoner of some nebulous war. But this was this is not an American citizen, and we're trying him for, you can't be treasonous if you are not an American. So there's so much wrong with this particular story, other than the fact that he challenged the state apparatus of the United States by publishing these leaks and put out information that was damning to our prosecution of the Iraq war and the war in Afghanistan. And he embarrassed the state. And so this is a really, really slippery slope. Now put yourself in the shoes of yourself a year from now with Donald Trump back into the office. And the precedent of of us disappearing and extraditing a whistleblower from another country and then basically condemning that person to death here in the United States. This is not the country that we're supposed to have. It's the country that we've been, 
but it's not the country we're supposed to have. So Hrund, I appreciate the question. I don't see a correlation between the two, but they're two very important stories that the only similarity that I see between them is that we're getting the narrative so demonstrably wrong. Knudsen, what's up, Bobby? Said, I'm happy for you, Max, that for the Democratic Party win of Tom Swazi in your New York CD3 special. Important to note that before Tom gave his unity speech in accepting his win, a protester with a Palestine flag reached the stage to shout about complicity in the genocide the government of Israel is doing as he was about to speak. Yes, Tom, we need unity. We need to be on the side of the people, unions, and all ethnicities. We need to steer the Democratic Party into the skid and drive this sucker to the arc of justice history may yet get to, if we can unify. Thank you, uh, Knudsen, for that. Thank you, obviously, always, for all the things that you do for the unfucking community, by the way. Yeah, as I've said before, Tom is uh, Tom is, is so much of a centrist that he would be considered by, by policy a Republican. Does he, that's by ideology, I would say. Now, by policy, he does pull the lever for most Democratic policies, and that's how he votes. And so he is a He's a useful idiot to have on the Democratic side, for sure, and that's fine. Also, it's a very, as I've said before, a very purple district. Hard to imagine that a progressive uh, would ever make uh, any strides in that district. So it's a it's a marginal victory, but a victory nonetheless to just at least flip the seat back to where it was before. If you go further out on Long Island, there are three, two, three, uh, two, two. Two more congressional seats, uh, three more congressional seats, excuse me, that uh, are very red. And then if you go just upstate a little bit uh, into the Westchester area, you have more blocks of red uh, that the that the Democratic establishment in, the, in New York lost last time around. Uh, and we're going to need to get those back for sure. And then if you go further upstate, then it is like a wall of red. Most people assume that New York uh, as a whole is very blue. It's not. So if you can imagine it, we have it here. But at least good to get that one back. Would be great to flip another one on Long Island and uh, certainly some of the ones that are kind of ringing the uh, the Westchester and, and just a little bit into some of the counties that are upstate to get those back again. Th- those will be critical. Um, there are a number of districts, obviously, that in this upcoming election that are going to be very critical. Now, I've said before, uh, I don't think... <clears throat> It looks like we're trending behind in the Senate. So if you were uh, laying odds in Vegas today, you would probably um, you'd probably take Democrats for the House and uh, Republicans for the Senate. And then, you know, we've got the toss up for the top seat because uh, we don't know if um, if there's an October surprise. It won't be October, obviously, but it would be a convention surprise with Biden and somebody else uh, assuming the top of the ticket. And we certainly don't know what the criminal charges against Trump pretend for his potential candidacy. So much yet to be written. But as we've said before, all things being equal, if it was a runoff right now, today, uh, Trump continues to clean Biden's clock by a healthy enough margin that you would have to imagine that um, we would see a return of Trump to the top and we would have a broken House, a broken Congress. Anyway, uh, let's go over to Modi. Mo said, number one, no matter how often we vote against right-of-middle Democrats, the party refuses to change. The only way to change them are in local elections and primaries. Number two, the party won't help progressive candidates to win. Number three, Joe Biden is slow but not senile. His brain works fine. Then a little later in the email, Mo said, I've picked up multiple disabilities over the years, so I'm in an assisted living residence. 
There are plenty here falling into senility and into the cruelty of Alzheimer's. Biden isn't in that category. My neighbors and I are good at picking out people whose previous nastiness is devolving into dangerousness. Their bodies can be fine, yet they swing canes at others. One ran over one of the nurses with a rollator. <laughs> the fellow who punched... I know, I mean, I, we shouldn't be laughing, but it's like... Ugh. The fellow who punched the assistant director fell on the floor. That was almost the only time we were all on the management side. <laughs> the assaulter is white, so he was given the option of leaving in a police cruiser or an ambulance. Biden is the group who takes a bit longer to decide on a scrabble move than he had. <laughs> Trump is in the rollator wielder. Unfortunately, he's neither in the back of the police cruiser or the ambulance. Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> as we go on and on and on uh, and get closer to the election, and we talk more about the age issue and how he is presenting in public, let's, let's just talk really quickly here about the moment that uh, his staff decided that there was no margin in allowing him to do a long form interview before the Super Bowl, right? Because they said it would have been a long interview and they would have and with the potential that they would have cherry picked clips that didn't make him look like he was sharper on his game. Uh, then you have Jon Stewart bringing the whole thing kind of back into focus and putting it on the map in a way that Democrats now have to deal with it. And I believe actually changed the narrative around this a little bit from the establishment Democrat perspective. Interesting to see the impact that he still has when he's in that chair. Um, but basically saying, like, if you tell us he's sharp, show us that. Because the clips that are getting out there of him are pretty awful. So we know this. He's done the least amount of interviews of any sitting president in the modern television area. Period. End of story. The least. Way fewer than Donald Trump. Mind you. The other day, just recently, at a moment where he decided to go and address the issue head on, and tell everybody that he knew what the fuck he was doing. And he fell to pieces and started mentioning world leaders that aren't there anymore. And that's a, that's a big problem, right? He, I mean, he has invoked uh, Mitterrand when he was trying to talk about Macron. Mitterrand has been dead for decades. In the press conference that we were just talking about, he was trying to uh, invoke the Mexican president and or... or uh, said that, uh, that that the head of, uh, that the Egyptian president was in Mexico. He talked about a German chancellor who has also been dead for a very long time when he was trying to uh, get Angela Merkel's name into his mouth. So it's like, yeah, th this is a very big problem. I agree with Modi that this is not a it's not a, a dementia issue. It, it's a slow on the uptake issue. But somebody had put together I can't remember which show I was watching, but somebody put together clips of him speaking in 2020. And speaking 2016, 2020, and then speaking now. You cannot argue that he was way sharper in just 2020 than he is right now. The cognitive decline, meaning the stuff that he can grab immediately, has been remarkable to see. It has been, I, I, I won't even say it's troubling. It's just, it's so noticeable that they, they can't walk it back. The thought of him on a debate stage with Donald Trump terrifies me terrifies me because i think that it would he would fluster biden to such a degree that it would uh it, it, he would look paralyzed up there he would absolutely look paralyzed i mean he barely got through it in the first round there was remember this was still a horse race the last time around and we were in the we were in the middle of a fucking pandemic right and it was still a horse race so not great not a great look now, the question becomes, yeah, but can he do the job? Meaning, can he still 
deliberate over critical decisions if he has the time to do it. Might not be the best public speaker, might not be able to grasp names, you know, immediately anymore. Fuck, I struggle with that now, right? But like, is this the person you want at the top of the ticket? And I saw Killer Mike was interviewed the other night and he was try- they were trying to press him on, you know, well, Bernie Sanders, your guy isn't in the race anymore. Which way are you going to go? And he said, I don't have a guy in this race. But what I do have is a platform. And I don't love the platform on either side, but there's one I like better. And so I'm going to go that way because I hate the choices. And I'm not going to throw my vote away either. But I am going to vote for the platform that better represents me, even if I don't like the people that are carrying it forward. My job is to work before, during, and after to get people representing the platform that can actually put it, uh, that can transform it and put it into action. So I think that's the best way of looking at it. Honestly, that was the simplest, best breakdown and explanation that I've heard about the about the controversy around both of the candidates at the top of the ticket. Kind of is what it is right now. Again, unless we have a massive surprise. Uh, but I I do appreciate Mo what you're saying about it's not that they don't have the 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 capacity or the uh, the institutional knowledge to make critical decisions and operate things, and it might take them a little bit longer to get things out and deliberate. But you know. This system is in place because that person is the titular head of the system at the moment, and then things will change down the road. But the other way, oof, the other path is disaster. Anyway, this one's a cool one. I'm just going to uh, read it straight here. Ready? This is from our buddy Bobby McDee. When I was about your daughter's age, and yes, it's cool that she's reading Hannah Arendt, I first read Aquinas on The Just War. I then read Cicero on the same topic. This wasn't too long after the Gulf War and just before Bosnia. It was all around the time of Rwanda and the decades-long bloody sectarianism which still seethed beneath the surface up north. I remember arguing with my tutor that war, in any form, was wrong. I was young and idealistic, and while I understood the necessity to stop tyranny, I had huge problems with the carnage wreaked on the world. How brute power was the language of our species? My tutor spoke benignly about real politique and various theories about why wars are necessary, telling me kindly I'd see the wood for the trees eventually. It wasn't until I saw Donald Sutherland's epic monologue in JFK explaining how the war machine works, how it ultimately comes down to money, that I understood how it all worked. Money. Money to elect Swazi. Money to fund Ukraine. Money to fund Israel. Money to fund Gaza. Money to elect politicians. Money to buy a SCOTUS seat. Rinse, repeat. The Hedges quote that prefaced your meditation is horrifying. I don't want to agree with him. I want to believe that we have evolved to a point where empathy is our default disposition. And yet, the truth is we remain a people besotted with cruelty as entertainment. I said it before. Homo homini lupus est. Man is wolf to man. Sometimes you just got to let the writer write and then just put it out there the way they said it. And so that is a gift to the unfucking audience. Uh, from Bobby McDee. And on that note, we have some news. Bobby McDee has published another book. This one, a collection of short and chilling tales. According to Paradoxical Magazine, it's a blast of cold air blasting through a warm room. 
These stories will hit you hard and stay with you long after you've finished reading them. Some amazing reviews on the back of that book. I already have not one, but two on order. One for me and one for 99. Hmm. That will be here, I think, tomorrow. Uh, so you can order them now. We're going to link the link to Goodreads. It's not on bookshop.org, uh, but it is in a number of other places. So I'm going to put the link on Goodreads in show notes so that you can go to it. And then from there, you can select all of the different avenues so you can get it through like Barnes & Noble and a few other places if you don't want to go to Amazon. Uh, which we obviously try to stay away from. Um, Even so though Goodreads is owned by Amazon. Goodreads is owned by Amazon. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Well, you'll give them the clicks, but not your money. How's that? Oh, but then you have to clear your cookies once you do it because they probably have an affiliate program. Damn it. <laughs> Open it in an incog. Delete the UTM. There you go. If you know what that meant, good on you. <laughs> All right. Uh, so congrats to Bobby McDee. Thank you for that uh, wonderful reflection, by the way. And uh, good luck on the book. You've got two copies in the bag. And for all of you out there that like, uh, you know, curling up with some short stories that will chill you to the bone. Uh, the book, by the way, is called The Occulting Light. There you go. Beautiful. So we're going to move on to John from M Minnesota. Yep. I still get nervous with state codes. There's a lot of M's. Did you ever see the Gary Goleman on Conan O'Brien? How states got their abbreviations skit? No. You, I feel like you've told me about it, though. It sounds familiar. Uh, let's watch it together after. Okay. Okay. But yeah, so I, it's like I usually know, but then I'm like, oh, what am I wrong? It's so. so good. Okay. It's so good. Well, John from Minnesota confirmed MN. Okay. Okay. I just finished the healthcare series in show notes, and I have a couple of thoughts. My wife is a family physician for the last 20 years, and we live in, <laughs> we live in rural West Central Minnesota. There we go. Yeah, we have more money per year than most around here, but still have more debt than most startup companies. Mm. Last time I looked, she has 10 years on her 30-year student loans, 120000 left locked in at 2.8%. It was over three hundred k when we got married in 2006, and she went to a state med school. When we got our house in 2007, we could not rent. There was only income-restricted rentals here. At the top of the market, we were in debt around 700000 Needless to say, we had severe austerity placed upon us, and everything we had went to barely getting ahead over 10 years. Throwing two kids, not getting childcare, and I not being able to get a job in my chosen profession only made things worse. Since moving home for her and starting a practice, she normally works 80 to 100 hours a week. Mm. With the background in place, my two cents, tort reform must be a core part going forward. The general physician wants to help people, that's why they do it. But a general physician gets paid around 200000 The general surgeon, 600000 Oh, and they work less. So when med students are looking for specialties, they choose the one that pays better and has a better life. The biggest problem from the physician standpoint is reimbursement. Basically, the point is that if everything stays the same and we only switch to Medicare for all, almost every facility will close. Obviously, since the federal government can buy anything that is for sale in its currency, that should not be the only problem. That's a good nod to MMT. Wrapping up the healthcare thoughts, the most striking part of the healthcare series was the passage of the ACA. I had a light bulb moment then. This was very apparent coming from the right wing. So, yeah, I love this because I think it really highlights in such an amazing way this, the daily struggles that people have, even with high paying jobs, because a lot of the high paying jobs in this country come with a tremendous amount of debt attached to them in order to access those fields. But the perception is that, listen, if you're a doctor, you're working 80 hours a week, you're probably killing it, right? Uh, and you're probably killing it, except the the threshold 
to be, quote, killing it is so absurd at this point, given the cost of living and the cost of debt in this country that um, you can see how so many people, even the people that we consider at the upper echelon and the upper tiers of society, are still struggling and feel like it's almost all for naught. This is the sentiment that is pervading through the electorate right now and is ultimately, you know, again, we strip all the things away at its core. It's how people feel about their their stability, their security, and their prospects moving forward when they go into the voting booth. And this is not a good look. And Jonathan H. said, you asked, can anyone explain, justify, or support the Israeli war in Gaza? I'd like to try. Not that I support it. I feel so angry at Israel for backing Hamas into a corner where the reality of the situation is what it is. I've been angry at Israel since 1967 when they did not immediately set up a Palestinian nation. All right, so let me be clear about Jonathan H. Jonathan H. is going through the thought experiment that we deliberately asked for here. This is not somebody who is trying to justify any sort of actions, as he'd said. So but here's, here's one theory. Since Hamas has been the ruling administrative entity for Gaza... They stand in a position of being the government. The war that Israel has unleashed is a war of one government against another. I recognize the asymmetry inherent in this argument, but bear with me. When the USA and allies defeated Nazi Germany, we did not spare the cities of Germany. We absolutely destroyed them, flattened, leveled. If there was any military asset within the wide range of bomb fall, it was bombs away. Citizens be damned. I remain pissed at Israel and the right-wing nationalists that have ruined the nation's moral health and national security. There will be war now for at least two generations. Violence begets violence. Revenge leaves us all blind. It's long past time for a Palestinian nation to emerge from this rubble. I've tried to give you the only justification for Israeli aggression that has made a shred of sense to me. Your turn, and thank you for all you do. What a salient point Jonathan makes. And I, I can invoke, again, Putin here who, after invading Ukraine, had the moral low ground with us to say, um, please don't throw stones in a glass house, considering what you've done in Iraq and Afghanistan for the past decade. And need I go on to talk about all of the other imperial exploits and colonial exploits that the United States has undertaken since becoming the preeminent superpower in the world after World War II? But World War II is where we should stop and talk about right now, as Jonathan mentions. The U.S. and its allies defeated Nazi Germany and did go on a bombing campaign and leveled the cities and flattened the cities. And it was government against government, national identity against national identity uh, all, all throughout the world. Also, we fucking obliterated Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I mean, devastated them. There is a popular uh, retelling that had we not done that, we would have lost hundreds of thousands, if not more than a million uh, U.S. soldiers. There's a lot more evidence, credible evidence out there that Japan was much more, much closer to working out an armistice deal and saw the writing on the wall and was trying through back channels and diplomatic channels to end the war. Uh, before we dropped the bomb and they had all that information and they did it anyway because that was that was our flex. But I digress. Russia lost 26 million people in World War II. 
And it's estimated that I think 15 or 18 million of them were civilians. I don't even think that we can wrap our heads around the scale of death and destruction that came out of either world war at this point. But what we can wrap our heads around is the UN Declaration of Human Rights from 1948 that did come out of that horror. Because I think the world looked around and they said, if we are going to have a credible world global organization standing in, at at least in judgment of our actions as nations going forward, we're going to have to set down some standards. And it is in violation of those standards that Israel is at this moment. It is in violation of those standards that the United States absolutely was, that Russia is in its aggression, that China would be if it uh, invaded Taiwan, that North Korea would be if it assaulted South Korea again. Uh, Certainly what's happening in the civil war uh, in Sudan and in the militancy in Congo, um, there are examples pretty much still raging all over the planet where you could look and see that there are nations in violation of the UN uh, Declaration of Human Rights. So that was our attempt to kind of put that genie back into the bottle at the end of the war to basically say that, no, that's not okay. So we do have some sort of historical precedent after that moment when millions of Russians were killed, where hundreds of thousands of U.S. soldiers were killed, millions of Germans, cities were leveled. I think the most popular example coming out of that period is what actually made, what what actually radicalized Howard Zinn, and that was the bombing of Dresden. And uh, the, the unnecessary toll that that took on an unsuspecting population that had already basically uh, been out of the war and we fucking bombed it anyway. Uh, And that's when at least it tipped people like Zinoff and others uh, through history that um, maybe by that time the bloodlust had completely taken over the Pentagon uh, and we were just determined to finish the job and obliterate everybody as, as much as we could. When you put Dresden together with uh, what we did in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It's hard to argue um, that, you know, we have we have devastated this planet. So in 1948, uh, they tried to put that, you know, they tried to put some, some rules in place, uh, at least some operating rules. And it's against that backdrop that Israel is committing what the UN, for at least four out of five of the pillars of genocide, There's an argument to be made that the fifth pillar of what would be considered a genocide is being met at this moment with uh, the mass starvation of the Gazans at this moment. We'll know more over the next several months uh, because that would, I think, trigger in most people's minds uh, the willingness to call it what it is beyond a massacre to call it a genocide. I think most people are comfortable calling it that now. Still so much controversy over it. Really? Oh, yeah. Very much so. I guess in casual conversation. Bernie Sanders was interviewed by uh, British media just the other week, and she tried to get him just last week and tried to get him to call it a genocide, uh, and he refused. I can see, like, from a political, like, just because they have to be careful. Well, they should be careful with their words. Usually politicians aren't. Rashida Tlaib hasn't been, and there's a number that that have been willing to say it, but Bernie stopped short of doing it. So I I know that that hesitancy is still there. I still think that that's a generational thing, personally. Maybe. Um, I feel like I see, I mean, this is like in like a social media and casual conversation. People are not (laughs) 
not shy of using the word. Young people, and I think in casual conversation and throughout social media, everybody's kind of got, they're, they're like, yep, nope, that looks like a genocide to me. I um, mean, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. Which, I mean, I don't, I, pillars, like, it's kind of at this point, I'm like, I know why we, we had this conversation earlier, mm-hmm. like, at when it just started and you were being hesitant as well, just to yeah. be historically accurate. But at this point, it's like, I mean, you're fucking kidding me? Like, ugh. I mean, since we put it out in the episode last week, the number of uh, dead in Gaza now is confirmed over 30,000. I mean, it just, it just, it's, it's just shocking. I'm but almost not shocked anymore. That's how sick the, it is. It should be the children that, that should be shocking people out of their seats. Nancy Pelosi wouldn't call it a genocide the other day and actually even said that the reason we send money there still is because it's being used for other stuff to defend democracy in the region. Oh, and that yeah. a lot of what's being fomented in that area is from Russia. This is Vladimir Putin's fault somehow. I mean, she got those words out of her mouth. It was scandalous. Get Go fucked. away. Get fucked, Pelosi. Yeah. Um, Jonathan, I really appreciate you bringing that up. I, and again, Jonathan's not trying to support it. He is actually participating in that thought experiment. Uh, and I do think that if you're to look at this clinically, that is a really that this is the way we should that this is the way it will be talked about in the United Nations and among policymakers in years to come to talk about what governments do to each other. The only problem here with that issue is that you are taking a stance that most people do not recognize. Most people, even in polite company, will not and behind closed doors in polite company and behind closed doors still do not recognize the legitimacy of Hamas because they had one election and then uh, there were no uh, you know, free elections after that point. So it what started out as a political entity certainly turned into a militant political entity. And then it, you know, it was a, it became the social superstructure. It became the political apparatus and the militant wing all kind of wrapped together, which made it so hard to kind of distinguish between, it's not like when people are going to war with the IDF and decisions are being made at the Knesset and then there are civilians, Israel's making the case that it's not a legitimate government. It is not an elected government. It might've been years ago, but that's no longer the case because they haven't held elections. And so we cannot distinguish between the civilians, between the political apparatus and between the military because they're saying to us, we are all Hamas. And so it's not our job to try and discern. Obviously, I don't believe that. But in making the government to government case, even Israel isn't making that case because they're not saying it's a credible government. They're saying that it is a purely terrorist organization that anybody there that lives comfortably under the thumb of that terrorist organization is complicit in their actions and, you know, by extension. It's a, it's a horrific argument to be made, uh, but it's what, you know, it's what they claim. So anyway, let's get to Thomas S. Thomas said, Max recommended The Missing Piece by Dennis Ross. This is unfortunate because Rashid Khalidi in his book, The Hundred Years More in Palestine, states that Ross went out of his way to support Israel in negotiations and ignored the rights of Palestinians. Max should let listeners know this. Uh... Maybe I could have done more. I was already getting enough shit from people saying that I was not including um, counter narratives and counter voices. Dennis Ross, to me, is uh, a middle of the road counter narrative to it. The reason I chose to include Dennis Ross is because he was in the room. Now, he was part of the problem. 
but he was in the room for the Oslo Accords because that was his position as one of the lead negotiators between Rabin and Arafat uh, and Fatah. So he, the book is is massive. He is, I think, unabashedly a supporter of Israel as all state mouthpieces have been and were. His words about Arafat, though, were, to me, strikingly flattering from a personal perspective. There was a respect there, but there was an institutional mistrust of the intentions of Fatah and even a mistrust of whether or not the Palestinians could operate an independent state. Um, So he clearly had bias in it. But if you actually read how he speaks about Arafat specifically, he characterized him as um, misunderstood, underestimated, a pretty interesting guy. And I think they actually had more productive dialogue with him than they did the Israelis because the Israelis would frustrate the process continually. And then he demonstrated in a number of uh, ways how Arafat would be totally reckless at the 11th hour and stymie some of the negotiations, which to me tracks historically with even the way that Khalidi talks about how Oslo fell apart and how they were undermining the other negotiations that were happening simultaneously and the ones that uh, Khalidi himself was involved in. There's no question to me that Ross was a shill for American and then American slash Israeli interests by proxy, because that's where we were at the time. But I do think that he had a fairly unvarnished look at the negotiations behind the scenes. And it's important. One of the reasons I quote Foreign Affairs magazine and I try to look at The Economist and I try to look at other what I would consider mainstream mouthpieces of of the state is because it's really helpful to understand how the state views things. You know, that's where you unearth real politique. That's when you under that's where you unearth the the real motivations and the calculus that they're making behind the scenes because make no mistake, there are no innocent actors. Yasser Arafat was not an innocent actor. Yitzhak Rabin was not an innocent actor in all this. They were all there for their own gain and national identity, but what they what they meant to the national identity. So I think it was, if anything, it was fair to include Dennis Ross because he was in the room at the time, but it doesn't necessarily, but I, I, I don't know, I, I could have said, I, I think by nature of the fact that he was on the negotiating team during the accords on the side of the Clinton administration that we've done enough work to show that, you know, his bias would have been pretty clear. It's not like he was some sort of uh, outlier. Like during the Carter administration, we talked about some of the boots on the ground in Iran and how some of our ambassadors there were telling a wholly different picture than what was being translated by Brzezinski, as an example. So I think when the distinction needs to be made, I, I usually make the distinction. In this case, I don't kind of didn't think I had to. Anyway, but there you go. Why don't we continue on with Elena S. So Elena said, I'm interested in your comments concerning AMLO. In what ways AMLO an authoritarian, being that he always works within the constraints of democracy and the limitations imposed by 36 years of neoliberal control? To say that he is a populist, a leftist, a nationalist is true, but he pushes his agendas through persuasion, not by force. How can any American living outside of Mexico 
understand what is going on here, since the Mexican media is 99% in the hands of the extreme right. So, Elena, let me... I, I tried to find where I was characterizing Obrador in the, the episode when I was in the show notes when I was talking about the different approaches, especially with the election of Millet and now paying more attention to Bekele in El Salvador. And my recollection is that I characterized AMLO as somewhere in between, as much more moderate than uh, somebody like Lula. But even Lula is playing the game more because he needs to stabilize uh, the economy while preventing deforestation. And obviously the activities related to deforestation are, are a huge part of the Brazilian economy. So he's, he's riding a fine line and playing, Lula's playing ball with corporate Brazil more so than maybe people are comfortable with. But he's doing that to make sure that he doesn't go too fast. When I was talking about Obrador, my feeling is that, and my sense is that he's governing with a very uh, progressive social mindset, but very much also playing ball uh, as a politician with some of the holdover neoliberal tendencies. So he's not blowing everything up and trying to have a progressive revolution in the way that Lula is trying to characterize his revolution or alternately the way Millet is trying to characterize his conservative revolution in Argentina. So I'm seeing... I see Obrador as a much more skilled politician in the vein of a Barack Obama with some some more socially progressive tendencies than his image, than he would like his image to be portrayed as a progressive. Um, so if I'm wrong on that, write in and let me know. I would love to know your perspective more so. Um, if I characterized him as more authoritarian, I apologize. That was not my intent. But I do think that he is hes much more of a political animal who can play all sides against the middle than people typically try to think of him when they, you know, have him in their heads as some sort of stealth, self-styled, you know, Bernie type figure, but for Mexico. The other thing, Elena, just so you know, is that I know that you, both you and uh, I think we'll read something from Maria from PR shortly. We're talking about uh, the migration policy, border crisis, and the way that immigration is characterized. So obviously, you know, we're going to hit that head on. One of the things, one of my open-ended questions um, that remains is, yes, the countries of origin have changed dramatically over the past couple of years, and yet the Mexican immigration, migration patterns have stayed, uh, are permanently fixed at number one. That makes sense. It's the bordering country. I get it. But why still so many? And why haven't there been more pockets of economic opportunity opened up under Obrador that is enticing uh, people to stay in Mexico or even encourage uh, some migration back into Mexico? Now, Elena does allude to that later in her email, talking about there are conservative pockets where the cartels are allowed to thrive because the conservative uh, governance is not playing ball and there's still some provincial strength among uh, the conservative uh, districts in Mexico. That kind of tracks and makes sense to me, but I want to understand that a little bit more. So that's one of the areas that I'm going to be digging into, just so you know. On that note, Maria from PR said, seriously, congratulations. The new website is spectacular. 
Sadly, I'll never be able to keep up with you, NFTR. I'm already a couple of episodes behind. I'm an old school, don't watch YouTube much, so although I love watching Max's serious face, I'm a podcast listener mostly. Good. Love that. And I'm hopelessly behind in uh, watching them on YouTube. No worries. Appreciate you. Appreciate you just being, you know, being here. But happily, we're growing. Now there's something for everyone. A cool, nice place, and I hope this project keeps growing and developing further. Uh, Secondly, I want to make a request or a suggestion. Max, can you please do an episode to cover and unfuck the damn border? So, um, yes. Uh, Wish granted. End of statement. Yep. Wish granted. We'll make that happen. I just wanted to make sure that we called you out there, Maria, because it's great to hear hear from you. And, um, yeah, we'll get to it all. So that is that. That's what we have for this week. There's a few people that we need to thank who have sent in donations. 99, you want to hit it? Yeah, before I do that, I Maria had asked, I don't know if it was in the same email, um, but I, I think I'd responded that. Uh, Maria used to frequent the Buy Me a Coffee page oh, and yeah. was wondering you know, you know, where it went and missed it. But we do still have a donation option. It is if you go to the memberships page, there is like a little box at the top that says supporter and you can donate. You can leave a message there. Uh, obviously, we love to read your messages, and we great, greatly appreciate anyone's support. I think maybe I need to do a better job with the messaging, because I don't think people have been uh, utilizing it or realizing that it's there even. You should put something like, you know, leave us a tip or tip us. or Yeah, um, so I think I'll probably play around with that and change it up. But I just wanted to let people, if there are others out there who didn't realize, I think it's just unftr.com slash memberships, and there is that top bar that says supporter. But as for our new members and new old members, mm. so we still have some rolling in. We have Hub, Martin the Martian, Matthew, Nation, Nation Schurst, <laughs> Nathan Surst, Quincy, Ruth M., Dave from Atagami, Ooh. Crimson, Nettie Hugger One, Alfie and Flash, and Stinkface. So they've all re-upped uh, and or come in net new on the membership platform. Thank you and welcome to everybody. Uh, quick shout out to, uh, to Hub. Nice to hear from you, Doc. And, um, I think he wrote in. He wrote in something on YouTube and yelled at you. Did he? I think he said that you need to fix your backdrop or something. He does. Oh, he called your things radiator covers. Which ones? Your Cheerios. Oh, <laughs> I love those. It's I know. my pineapple lips. What? Pineapple lamp. What does that mean? That's what it's called. From who? This the person I bought them from twenty <laughs> years ago. I call them Cheerios. <laughs> It doesn't look like a pineapple, dude. I'm just telling you what they call I know, me. but I'm telling you. When you turn it on with the golden hue, it kind of looks like a little bit of a pineapple. Imagine it had some hair sticking out of the top of it. You um, call it a pineapple. Okay. Just because it's not wearing square pants, you you can't you can't the, see it? The pineapple doesn't wear square pants. The oh, sponge which one's does. The pun- which one's the pineapple? Oh, that's the where house. it lives. The house. <laughs> just because there isn't a little... Old man tries to quote SpongeBob. Because <laughs> there isn't a little sponge with square pants in there? You can't see it for what it is? Well, he looks more like Spongebob than he does like the pineapple because he's literally a square and he sort of has pants. Mm. They It's actually kind of like a modern minimalistic Spongebob statue. <laughs> I look at it. Some of them have fallen off. Yeah, the side. It's been moved a lot. I've had these for a long time. Where were they in the old office? By the front door? Mm. I think they were in storage. No, they were in the old office. You sure? Oh, so. oh, uh, it's uh, a good question. Then you're, I don't know. Mm. You had a good office in there. Yeah. You had a door. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have a fucking door here. When I have the studio, I can come in here. Yeah. And, close and ignore me. No, never do that. Uh, it's 
It's hard to do. Let me tell you that. I've tried. Hey, 99. I'll catch you next time in whatever it is. I was ignoring you. It was a joke. Did you like it? Mm. Manny, I hope you're doing all right. That was an air horn. He was, was definitely playing the air horn. That was right? pretty good. Yeah. He might have, he might, you know, depending on his mood, come on and say hi. I hope he did. He's been chatty lately. I hope he did. I feel like I fulfilled my quota at the beginning of the show when I told people about the this week, that week thing. Uh, but hey, how you doing? What's up? Yeah, I've been doing things. Uh, you're about to talk about them because I already edited the part that you're about to say. And it's true. I'm doing a lot of traveling and speaking and uh, working with schools and uh, doing panels. I'm doing a panel today. I have to go. I have to leave. What am I doing talking to you? I got to be in Atlanta in like an hour. Bye. He's been he's been grinding out. He's been doing his thing. If you work in a school district. Stop. You should go to mannyfaces.com. That is Don't do that while you're he's screwing a water ball cap on while he's talking. This isn't fully work here. Amateur hour. If you work in a school district, go to Manny Faces stuff. Manny, you can tell them where to go. Yep, you were right. Mannyfaces.com is good. Uh, Manny's been giving lectures, uh, doing workshops. Stop touching the cap. <laughs> uh, it, first of all, it's a super directional mic. I don't I care. Hear it. Uh, he's been giving workshops uh, about how hip hop can save America. Uh, but he's doing them in schools. He has a school specific curriculum for them. Very cool. So uh, if you work in a district and you're interested in hip-hop education, bring them in. Don't forget to uh, like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. If you aren't a subscriber to the newsletter, be one. You know, Just you know, do it. You know what I read the other day? What's that? We might be giving too many calls to action. Who said that? Uh, someone who's a podcasting industry person. Oh. That we give too many, not us specifically. Oh. But like, we, we need to pick one. Like today, today's episode, it's call to action, is subscribe to the newsletter. Like we need to do that. All right. I think. So let's pick one today. And and look, this is the agreement we're going to enter with you. Okay. We're only going to do one. Yep. But you have to do it. I like it. So you're, you're, you're on your phone before you pick a new podcast. If you're driving, don't forget. Think about it every second. So what's today's call to action? It's like, uh, not SpongeBob. Sesame Newsletter. Street. Okay. Newsletter. So go to unftr.com. There is in the top right, you'll see a button that says subscribe. In the footer, you should see a button that says subscribe. Mm. In the the sidebar, you should see a thing that says subscribe. Mm. And you can, if you do that, you're going to get the newsletter every Friday. There unless you you've opted out of all previous emails, in which case you need to opt back in. That's the fast disclaimer at the end of the medicine commercial. All right. Thanks. Okay. Subscribe. See ya. Bye. Bye.